Dotnet Rocks episode 886, recorded live Monday, June 27th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. And by Franklins.net, makers of GesturePack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at GesturePak.com. And by Diatom, developers of the .NET Rocks mobile app, available now for Windows Phone, iPhone, and Android phones. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. It's Carl and Richard. It's only fitting that we do the Whiskey Geek Out show in your country. <laughs> Why? Why would you I say that? Know. Well, you know, we're here at DevTeach, and we, uh, we've been putting off doing this show for, for a while. I don't think we're putting it off. We've been doing research. A lot of research. <laughs> yeah. We tried to schedule a recording of the show last night and figured, well... We should do a little research before we start the show. And it turns out we did a little too much <laughs> too research. Too much research. Yeah, yep. So we need to go to bed. It's so time for bed. Quarter a little later. But clearly a show that was due to be done. Yeah. So uh, I don't have a better no framework, but you do have a comment, do you? Absolutely. I grabbed a comment. It's the only time I get to read comments from other Geek Out episodes. Right. So I thought we ought to grab one. So this is from 796. This is the one we did about Mars. And uh, when we talked about Curiosity and all the other missions and so right. forth, which are in a great state right now, you know, yeah. the, the Curiosity's doing its thing, still going. Well, Curiosity's the new one; it's I mean, it's still inside of its original oh, plan. Yeah, yeah. It's I Opportunity. Mean, it's Opportunity that's still going, still going. Yeah. It's astonishing how well that's going on. So, and now they're starting to talk about next generation projects to Mars. Starting to do. Uh, um, Retrieval missions, and there's the crazy Mars One mission where they want to fly an older couple to Mars. One way. Well, actually, no, that one they want to actually do just a flyby and bring really? them back. But the problem is because it's like three years in space, it's going to do serious uh, radiation damage to them. So they want an older yeah. couple so that they've already had their kids and they're not concerned right. about that anymore because right. we oh. still haven't solved the radiation problem. But I this is not a show that. about Mars. No, no, it's not. But here's the comment to read about. Okay. This is from a, the commenter's name is E. Lodgden, who says, uh, enjoyed the, quote, out of this world geek out. Mm. Being born just a few days after Sputnik 1 was launched, I consider myself a true child of the space age. Wow. Growing up, I devoured everything I could get my hands on to read about the space program. I'm intrigued by Richard's statement that you could make it to Mars in three days by using constant 1G acceleration. That would solve a lot of problems if an adequate propulsion system could be found. Yeah. There's a few out there, you know, the Vasimir technology that uh, um, you talked about on the show. We've talked about before is actually going to go up in the space station in the next couple of years to be tested a 200 kilowatt version. And he's already starting to talk about multi megawatt versions of wow. that engine. So yeah, we were the ingredients are there is an exciting time. But this comment ends with something I think you'll appreciate, Carl. It says, that said, I think an interesting geek out show will be one that explored Carl's and Richard's passion, Scotch whiskey. How about a show that explores bourbon and whiskey, including scotch, their differences, history, and distilling techniques? That is the silliest thing I've ever heard. There's There's no no way way we're doing that. We can't do that. No, No, this is a .NET show. The show is called .NET Rock. We're serious people here. Yeah, we are serious professionals. We will not stoop to... Okay. 
So, sir, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via the awesome iPhone, Android, Windows Phone, and Windows 8 apps built for .NET Rocks by Diatom Enterprises, our good friends out in Latvia, always looking for new projects. If you've got a podcast you'd like to have a client for or any other mobile app, you should give them a ring. And uh, we're loving our apps. People are using them. It's good stuff. Okay, here we go. It's the whiskey show. How did we start? Where do you want to go first? I want to start with the spelling of the word whiskey. Oh, no, really? Because there is it is not without controversy. There is controversy, without a doubt. So, apparently, the original spelling did not contain an E. Right. And that has many people, especially hardcore scotch drinkers, annoyed that most writers now refer to it as whiskey with an E. Yeah, the E-Y versus just Y. But E-Y is the most common spelling of whiskey Mm -hmm. today and so that's how we're going to spell it because sorry we don't live in the dark ages anymore right i mean english language evolves that being said if you go to wikipedia and search for scotch whiskey with an e it will redirect you to scotch whiskey without (laughs) without an e E, yeah although if you search for irish whiskey you get it with an e yeah just so you know and we really should start with scotch whiskey because i think in a lot of ways it's the most fundamental whiskey yeah. Uh, in terms of certain elements of distillation. Well, it's simple. It's malted barley and that's it. Yeah. And Always malted barley. And then the thing it's in barley is a really ancient grain for starters. Yeah. And I'm sure quite by accident, humans going all the way back to the Egyptians, there's evidence that they were making beer. And it's not hard to figure out why. You put your grain in a pot because you're trying to keep it Outside of the growing season. Right. It gets wet. Because it rains and pots aren't always watertight. So they get wet and it goes somewhat moldy. But you can't waste the grain. Right. Because it's important, right? You've only got so much food. And then you find out it tastes not so bad and it has interesting effects. (laughs) So, I mean, beer is really, really very ancient. And fundamentally, Scotch whiskey is distilled beer. You told me once, and I think you read this book, that the premise of this book was... That people started growing grain for beer, and bread was sort of came came after that. Well, and and can, and from a developmental process, beer's easier to make than bread. Sure, right? It's something that happens naturally, almost passively. Right. Uh, it's all because there's yeasts in the air. Right. You look at humans' behavior to store food, to try and store food, to try and preserve milk. Cheese is a byproduct of trying to preserve right. milk. And right. again, you put it in, in a cave and yeah. different caves have different yeasts in them naturally right. that magically transform milk into these remarkable products or put it into animal skins. Yeah. And again, animal skins have uh, enzymes in them that alter the food, happen to preserve it and change its flavor somewhat. And we also know from biology that our bodies respond very well to fermented foods in general. Yeah. That's very good for us. Yeah. Uh, And so that tells us that we've been fermenting food for a long time. That we may have evolved, that you know the folks that fermented food, uh, because they had more food, it lasted longer, were the ones who survived, and it's an evolutionary behavior. And it's not that particular old one. And they pass on the beer-making gene to their sons and daughters. Well, and and if if you go and research beer-making in general, you'll find that there's a group of people out there pretty certain that civilization exists because of beer and no other reason. Yeah, I think this was what I was talking about, this book you were telling me, or or wherever you found this information. All right, so we'll start with Scotch whiskey. So uh, the rules of making Scotch whiskey, key one is malted barley only, and what they call malt. Now, barley... Uh, is 
has a particular enzyme in it that really helps the fermentation process, maybe more than other grains. Is that true? Well, yeah, we, we'll get into that when we get into bourbon especially, but barley was one of the first grains to recognize when you, I mean, when, you, when you're malting, what you're actually doing is sprouting the grain. So malted means sprouted. Effectively, yeah. yeah. And, and so why? Why would you do that? Because when a grain is whole, when it's new, it's the, uh, the sugars that are in it are stored as complex starches, mm-hmm. which makes it very stable. That's why it lasts a long time. But it's also covered in a, a, in a thick husk. A, a hard shell, which yeah. is going to, it needs to break out of. But the starches in that form, you can grind it up, mm. are pretty hard to digest. Yeah. And so by getting the seed wet and letting it sprout, that process that actually goes on converts those complex starches into simpler sugars. Now, if you let it keep going, it'll eventually use up all the sugars trying to grow the plant and you don't get any sugar from it at all. So the amount of time that you sprout it is fairly important as to how much sugar conversion has gone on and how much energy has been used up. And you have to stop that sprouting process. And you typically do it by heating up or drying out the grain. And you told me once that if you do it wrong, you can end up with poison or something. Well, look, think about what we're doing here. I'm taking a grain, I'm getting it wet enough that it starts to grow. Yeah. If it's too wet, it'll go moldy. And right. there are very dangerous molds when you're doing this particular process, yeah. especially if you're doing it at scale, which is what you need to do when you're talking about making a significant batch of whiskey. Like an argot mold, for example, on wheat will will kill you. Yeah. It'll drive it's you crazy. Toxic. In fact, they think that's what ki- what what was the cause of all the Salem witch trials and uh, the... It was an argot. Out and, out and about in your part of the world way yeah. back when. But yeah, yeah. yeah, that they got. And again, it's all so the hallucinations and just eventual death. It's absolutely possible. So, yeah, it's something you have to do carefully. And different distilleries do it different ways. Although, one of my experiences traveling in Scotland and actually checking out distilleries is there's very few companies that still do their own malting because it's so picky it is complex and complicated and so they're and they want to do it at scale and so today they buy barley on the open market Mm -hmm. although there are always exceptions mccallan grows a little bit of their own barley Mm -hmm. uh and then they ship it off to the mall they and then the malters buy it for you will sprout it the amount you wanted it sprouted and dry it the way you want it dried and grind it the way you want it ground so I understand that the smoky scotches are that way because of peat smoke. And, and I guess it's because they dry the malted barley with peat. Right. But, and peat, if you don't know, is very abundant in that part of the world. And in Ireland, for example, they used to heat their homes with it. Because, sure. Because they couldn't afford – there was no wood. Right? Well, it's, it's only – you know, trees only regrow so fast. So, right. uh, you know – Different areas of Scotland have different environments. An environment is a sort of a big part of what makes Scotch Scotch. Right. And there's lots of arguments from purists. The fact that there's now centralized malting and so forth undermines the regionality of Scotch. So I have a friend who has an Irish pub down here in New London. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he loves to do is burn peat in the pub because it reminds him of home. Right. You know, and a certain so, scent to that. Yeah. And and the island of Isley, which is in the southwest of Scotland, mm-hmm. has virtually no trees, but lots of peat. So yeah. and there's several distilleries there, ones like Beaumore, Lagavulin, Lafroy, and and uh they all uh have that peat flavor because that's what they needed to do. Now although admittedly for most of them, their malt is actually made elsewhere in Scotland. And then shipped over. 
and then ship to them after it's been ground to the proper amount. But they do use peat to do the drying, and it's the amount of peat that they want and how right. much drying is on, you know, very secret special formulas right. that each <laughs> of these distilleries do. So now we're at a point where we have what they call grist. So grist is the, the dried malted barley that's been ground in a particular rate, and there's different ratios of pieces and so forth. Again, okay. every distillery has their own special formula. All right. So they take the grist and they put it into a massive uh, uh, mash tun. That's big, Cooker. big, big bin, and I, and they and they wash it with hot water. Yeah. And again, each distillery does it slightly differently. They might do two washes or three washes. Uh, the temperatures so in, vary. In, so basically, it's hot water, and they get it all wet, and then they drain the water and rinse it, rinse it all again, and rinse it again. And it's the water they're keeping. So essentially, what is the water doing? It's rinsing the sugars. And those flavors yeah. out of the out of the grist. Okay, so now you have sugary water, it's just fermented, and it's beer. It's going to be, yeah. And now, and the the grains that's left behind now, they rinse the sugar out of. They sell or give away as cattle feed, right? So it's uh, and this isn't something that's particular to Scotch bourbon distilleries do the same thing yeah, and they've got to do something with all those grains so yeah. uh, after they've taken the sugar out of them so yeah. it's apparently it's good it's good cattle food yeah so now you have sugary water and you put it into typically most distilleries in scotland still use cypress uh fermenting bins so they're made of wood and mm. we saw this also in bourbon as well sure. uh, some use stainless steel but most are still using wood and they have no heaters or anything in them right. either and they will add brewer's yeast to it and uh, the brewing process I found with the scotch was really intensive. Three to five days, and they checked the weather. That it, and it was important whether they started in the morning or in the evening, depending on what was going to happen with the weather. Because, again, you have no heating. And the yeast only lives at a very specific temperature. Right. And so you want that yeast process to go well because it's this is where you're going to get your alcohol from. Right. So depending on how long you run the fermentation, they, and especially – when you're talking about scotch whiskey at this point you've made wart you've made beer right wart, it's w-o-r-t w-o-r-t is beer is raw young beer if yeah. you now went off and and filtered this and added hops to it and use a couple other techniques you could go to a lager or an ale at mm -hmm, this point mm -hmm. you really would have beer okay but now we take the turn to start becoming whiskey and so the the barley malting process is mm -hmm. uh gives scotch its characteristic flavor also, the brewer's yeast that they use, which is very secretive, mm -hmm. they're very secretive about that. What kind of yeast they use also can shape the flavor yep. profile of a scotch. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, and how long they ferment for and mm -hmm. what the weather was at the time. And, and these, yeah. by the way, these barrels that they, the, the, the bins that they're doing this in, they're massive, 5,000, 10,000 gallon bins. Yeah. You've never, and, uh, and while it's fermenting, by the way, there's so many, so much carbon dioxide being released. That if you fell into that, you, you would drop to the bottom. Yeah, you, you wouldn't float. You could not swim up. You are going to die at yeah. the bottom of a giant bin of raw so beer. So we'll get to bourbon in a few minutes, but Richard and I did go on a trip to Kentucky, and we did have a tour of the distilleries there. And one of the most fascinating things was these fermenting vats, and in Maker's Mark in particular, they were 10,000-gallon vats. Massive. Massive. And Deep, 20, 30 And it feet turns high. out they weren't even the biggest ones we no, saw. they had bigger. We <laughs> saw bigger. Yeah. So, but it looked like a whirlpool bathtub bubbling. The bubbles were so big and so violent, and the, the heat coming off of it was, you really thought that, oh, no, there's something. Somebody's being, boiling this. Somebody's boiling this. That's exactly what it 
what it seemed like, but no, no, it's just the well, we the saw the empty ones. They're just bins. They're just There's bins. nothing in there. We're just a drain at the bottom yeah. and the fillers at the top. So it's amazing the force of the yeast yep. uh, and the smell of bread. Yeah. Just that real yeasty, very tasty smell going yep. on inside of the mash. It smells like bakeries. All right, next phase. We've now got our alcohol level up, depending on the distillery, somewhere between 7 and 12%. Yeah. And that's, you know, raw beer, essentially. So in Scotch whiskey, there's a twice distill method, and virtually every Scotch whiskey distillery uses pot stills. So these are giant kettles of copper. So they pump that wort into the kettles, and then they uh, start to to heat it. So distillation is you are heating up that liquid enough to evaporate the alcohol and leave behind the other materials. But it's not a pure process. You don't want 100% alcohol. So the alcohol evaporates first before the yes, water evaporates. That's right. Yeah. It evaporates at a lower temperature. Yeah. Now, every distillery has a slightly different shape to the pot still. Mm. The size of the still itself, the height of the main body of it, and then there's a neck, and that neck can be in a number of different shapes. Some will actually tip over below 90 degrees. Some mm. will come up a very slow slant. Some mm. are short, mm-hmm. and they, from the top of that neck, they then go into a condenser, and the condenser is basically... It just looks like a coil Yeah, metal. there are different kinds of condensers, but the typical one is a jacket condenser, so they're basically wrapping that pipe with another pipe, and they're pumping cold water across it to right. cool the alcohol down into a liquid form. Right. Now, the reason for all the complexity around the neck is you're, you're trying to have reflux. So as the alcohol evaporates and goes up that neck... You want it, some to drop back. You want it to drop back in and, and reflux back repeatedly so that you're sort of shaping the flavor. And so the only stuff that actually gets turned to liquid is in a very pure form. But not too pure. Now, there's actually rules. You can't be at 95% alcohol. Hmm. And you don't want to be No, either. sure. And typically, it's substantially lower. Most of the distilleries that were willing to share numbers with me when I was talking to them in Scotland would talk about alcohol ranges more in the 70% range hmm. because the purer the alcohol, less flavor. Right. You know, when you talk about pure grain alcohol, which when we talk about blended yeah. whiskeys, they use pure grain alcohol, 100% alcohol. Right, right. They have no flavor at all. It's just, right? it's yeah. just alcohol. Yep. And so... When you, you want to preserve that grain character and that peaty flavor, mm-hmm. those things mm-hmm. come from the impurities in the alcohol. Right, right. So the level that you distill it at, I think, is really important. But the first pass, what they call the low wines pass, doesn't get you up to those kinds of numbers. It gets you more in the 30, 40% range. Mm-hmm. And then that, uh, goes through the, fl- this, uh, uh, flow box that basically is where they can see the alcohol being uh, rendered from right. distilled out from the And they can the test it and taste it and all that stuff. Actually, in Scotland, they can't. Oh, really? So because Scotland has been doing distilling for so long, there are these archaic laws huh. around what you're allowed to do with the whiskey. And we saw some laws in, in other places as well. Like There's very strict controls over what happens to the barrels and so forth. The right. government wants its cut, right? They control us. And so the... The distilling box where you're seeing the, the flow of the whiskey come out is locked in Scotland, hmm. and only the government has the key. Wow. And there, But there are controls outside, so they're able to take the flow and either put it into what they call a head tank or actually put it into the fine wines tank, the tank that's going to go to the next distillation. Okay. Now, you brought up the head. Head, tail, heart. Head, tail, and heart. Yes. It's a great time to talk about this. It's a really interesting part of the process is that when, when your pot still is actually getting up to temperature, the first parts of the distillate aren't very good. They're not, generally they look at clarity. 
They, they want a very clear product coming out. And at first it will be cloudy. It's contaminated with other materials. And when we get to bourbon, we'll talk about the really fun part about yeah. head and heart right. and so forth. So they will actually dump those early distillates into a separate tank to be put back in the pot still for the next batches. Hmm. So they're always carrying this stuff forward. And they talk about the maturation of a still is that it's only after you've had a number of distillations through it that you have this sort of starter material that yeah. is part of what makes the character of, of a good scotch. Okay. So the master distiller is the guy literally watching this flow until he's happy with how clear it is, and then he'll flip a lever to turn that spout into the fine wines holding tank. Okay, so from there, it goes into a second distillation yes. process, Typically, right? that still is about half the size of the low wine still. It's okay. smaller, uh, slightly different flows, and it goes through a different set of pipes. So once it goes into there, then that gets distilled again, correct? Right. Now you go to the fine wine still. It's usually about a half the size of the low wine still. Okay. And they sometimes there's some variation in the neck as well, but they tend to look similar to each other. Okay. And most of the time with most distilleries, I saw everything built in pairs. Mm-hmm. So that they had two full distillation chains. So it could take one down and still be able to do distillation. Right, sure. Uh, and it goes back to the same box with a different spout and same cutting as well. They'll go back to the head tank and they'll feed that back in. Hmm. But ultimately, the, the, the heart, the center part of the distillation mm-hmm. now is sort of the, that's the first raw whiskey. Okay. And it's completely clear. Yeah. Uh, somewhere 65 up to 75% alcohol depends on the still, the distillery. Some go higher. Mm-hmm. And there's an important rule in, in scotch whiskey, especially that you can't, have whiskey below 40% alcohol, although m- much whiskey is sold as exactly 40%, and we'll talk about how they, they do that. But and you also can't have it above a certain level, right? You can never go above 94.8, something like that, Some, yeah. around 95. You don't want to be there You anyway. don't want to be there That's anyway. just jet fuel. Like, why would yeah, you bother? Right. But now you get to the most, uh, arguably, the most interesting phase of whiskey, which is now it has to be barreled. Right. And uh, for... Scotch whiskey be called scotch. It has to be in a barrel for a minimum of three years, and although you will almost never find whiskey that young. And does the barrel have to be made out of a certain type of wood? No, not really, although they're typically made out of oak, but all kinds of different oak are used. Hmm. Uh, they can't be larger than 700 liters hmm. or about 150 uh, U.S. gallons. That the, you know, that's about it for the rules. It's pretty broad at that point, but it does have to stay uh, in the barrels for at least three years. Although normally you won't find anything called scotch that's less than eight years old. And is this really where scotch gets its color and its character is from the the barrel? Yes, and that's the you know. It, what is it with humans that they <laughs> like the flavors they can extract from, from wood from with wood. alcohol? Yeah. Right? right. Whether it's whiskey or or uh, or wine. Yeah. Like there is something going on that. Why do we like this? Because we clearly do. We really do. Yeah. But you're now you got to think about alcohol in terms of being a solvent, and it's dissolving certain elements of the wood into the liquid. Well, you know, and it's no accident, no surprise either, that we use barrels to age these in because the barrel was the primary vessel for the grain. Yeah. On the farm. Yeah, that's what you put the grain in in the first place, and now you've turned it into alcohol, and then you put it back put in the barrel in the and barrel. you let it sit. And it, and it ages there. So yeah. normally it's quite a few years. And then now the storage of the barrels, the whole barreling process, mm-hmm. is especially when you get to these bigger distilleries. Like when mm-hmm. I went to McAllen, up on the hill, 
where these enormous warehouses, row on row on row, and room to build more, mm. and they're filled to the roof with barrels. Yeah. Just these massive, um, you know, typically 500 liter barrels. Wow. Now, while scotch sits in a barrel, and we'll talk about all the kinds of barrels. Did you say that they couldn't be no, they couldn't be any bigger than 300 something liters? 700. Oh, 700. Yeah. 700 liters, 185 uh, US gallons or 154 imperial gallons. But, right. but typically the ones I saw were mostly 500 okay. uh, liters because they, a lot, I went to space side and a lot of those barrels come from other places. They're used for something else first, mm. like port and sherry and bourbon and so forth. Mm-hmm. And they mostly make 500 liter barrels. <laughs> okay. Um, but when you, not even getting all the different kinds of barrels, but right, right. while these barrels are sitting and aging, they're sitting out in, in, in storehouses that are not heated. Right. They're just there. And, uh, so they, again, they're picking up the sort of character, the weather the of where they're climate. living in. Yeah. The natural climate really matters. And I know that they do this in bourbon. Do they rotate the barrels so that the ones at the top get more heat? And so they rotate them up so that they share, you know, they sort of even out. None of the scotch distilleries I went to ever touched their barrels. Well, they you know what? This Scotland is a little further north than mm-hmm. Kentucky, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So I don't think so it has much heat a, problems. They don't have but, the heat problems. And, yeah. and they certainly talked about this whole dynamic of where the barrel sat in the storeroom affected what happened to the barrel over time. Right. Because uh, the barrel breathes. And so you gradually lose liquid from the barrel in a form of evaporation. And in right. scotch, they talk about the angel share, which is actually that alcohol that escapes from the barrel over time. So they use that term in Scotland as well. Yes, the yeah. angel share. And you can't resist it. And, it, yeah. and in the old storehouses we were walking through, the roof of the building was always black with mm-hmm. white stains in it. Mm-hmm. And it was alcohol staining the right. ceiling. right. But it also means the rate of loss is between about a half a percent up to two and a half percent per year. Right. And remember this magic number. It's not scotch anymore if it's under 40% alcohol. Right, right, right. So that's why you just can't leave it in the barrel forever. At right. some point, it's just goo. Right. <laughs> it's not good anymore. Yeah. And it's an inexact science. Every barrel is a little bit different. So the alcohol is evaporating off? The alcohol is evaporating away. And so that means that it's becoming less alcoholic over time. And that's important, yeah. right? That these flavors are being pulled in and the amount of liquid's going down. So actually the, the tree flavors get stronger and stronger and stronger over time. And typically the scotch gets darker over time the longer it's in the barrel. So they probably need to calculate how strong they distill it to before it goes in the barrel so that if they want a 12-year scotch... The, the, with evaporation, they'll end up at a certain percentage. Well, it's not that exact because every barrel's different and where it sits is different too. Mm. And, and it, this was a, a revelation to me talking with the folks at McAllen to realize when you put that scotch in that barrel, you're not thinking that's going to be McAllen 12. Right. You're not. There's barrelmen. And they sample these barrels every few years, not mm. all of them, several of them, looking for particular flavors. Mm. You know, the most amazing thing about Macallan 12 is that it tastes like Macallan 12 every single every time. year. Yeah. How do you do that when you know that each barrel is going to be different? Right. That each mashing that you did, and it's, it's only single malt because it came from one malting. Right. Right. That's what single malt means is that it came from one mass of malt. And these days, that's not even one field of barley. That's many sources of barley, mm-hmm. barley, but they were all malted at the same time, mm-hmm. ground at the same time, and essentially distilled at the same time. Right. 
but then they go into barrels and then you wait. So these barrelmen are sampling these barrels and they're looking for particular flavors. And when you see a bottle of Macallan 12, what that's telling you is the youngest barrel that went into that bottle was 12 years old. Right. The they're, youngest. The youngest. There yeah. may be older ones in it. Right. But the youngest is 12 years so old. So they're blending those barrels together right. to which, find. Which you've said a sacrilegious thing because yeah. blending's a big deal. That's right? right. Yeah. This is, but it, but it's true. They take many, many barrels and yeah. put them together to yeah. get Macallan 12, the particular flavor. Hmm. And they, the art of these men ability to taste this younger whiskey and figure out how to assemble it into the flavor profile they want. So that it's Macallan 12 again and again and again. So what are the different kinds of barrels that we can use in scotch and what what makes them different? Well, typically, you know, they say that the, the sc scotch are cheap, right? So they'd rather not spend the money on new wood to, to actually make barrels. They take over used barrels wherever possible. And different right. regions of Scotland do this differently, right? And they, scotch regions, the lowlands, the highlands... Uh, space space side. side, which is really part of the, the Highlands. Highlands. Yeah. And then you have the Islay. Uh, Campbelltown is down in the far south, Islay in the southwest, the Isle of Skies in the northwest, and mm -hmm. Jura in the northeast. Although these mm -hmm. are typically called the Islands mm -hmm. scotches. Although Islay has quite a few distilleries. Uh, Sky has exactly one. It's Talisker. Mm -hmm. And there are two or three on, on Jura, including a scotch called Jura. Okay. Um, Highland Park comes from up there as well. So, uh, different kinds of barrels, Spanish port barrels, French port barrels, French sherry barrels, uh, and American bourbon barrels. Isn't that interesting? Yes. All these different kinds of barrels can go into to making scotch. So, for example, traditional Macallan, like Macallan 12 we've been talking about, are all aged in sherry oak barrels. So these are barrels that have been used for making sherry. And so typically, how long is sherry barreled for well sherry's barrel for you know you can get sherry as much as 25 years old really right so there, there are plenty of old uh sherry uh, uh barrels out there but uh sherry makers also reuse their barrels quite a bit right but they get to a certain point where they've been used enough and then they'll sell them to, to the to the scots to different distilleries mm. and in the case of mccallan uh, certainly they use those sherry barrels now, what happens when you use a sherry barrel? Because this is the amazing thing. We learned this at the bourbon. Yep. There can be three or four gallons of alcohol. Still in the barrel. In the wood. Yeah. And they and the barrels are disassembled too, right? When they ship them, they ship them disassembled because they take up less room. And then there's right. cooperages in Scotland that put these barrels back together yeah. and repair staves and so forth so they can actually uh, use them effectively. Yeah. So needless to say, some of the sherry flavors come into the scotch as well. It right. tends to darken it faster. Sure. You look at Macallan 12, it's quite a dark scotch. And you can sort of taste the fruit in it. Yeah, that know? sort of that particular that flavor, flavor comes through. Yeah, and and that's not the only kind of of uh, Macallan. Like Macallan has a new line called the Fine Oak line, right? And Fine Oak actually is a less expensive Scotch because they combine bourbon barrels, sherry barrels, and port barrels in hmm. a given blending. Now remember, it's still single malt, and that's why I like it. <laughs> well, it, but the funny part is just that the the those sherry casks are quite expensive. By the way, the least expensive barrels, bourbon barrels, yeah, because there's lots of them. Because yeah. bourbon barrels can only be used once by the bourbon guys. That's right. So they're always trying to unload that's, their barrels. That's part of the rules of bourbon, which I'll talk about in a minute. Sure. So as the uh, aging goes on, and, and those uh, they they extract some of those flavors out, mm -hmm. and you you get a different flavor profile. But I, I just love the idea that 
fine the fine oak series from Macallan, which is a great drinking scotch. Yeah, is actually three different kinds of barrels, and then they blend those together before right. they put them in the bottle. Uh, but it's still a single malt because it right. came from one malting. That's right. right. I mean, that's the the important part. Well, of all it that. really speaks to the two different things that you get the flavor from in scotch. One is the grain and the malting. Yeah, and the other is the uh, is the barrel. The barrel, and and it's, right. you know we've had a chance to taste it both ways. Yeah. Now. Coming out of the barrels, and, and and different, we could talk for hours about the different distilleries and what they do. Like Glenfiddich uses three different kinds of barrels for their initial aging, and then they combine them for a particular flavor pile, put them back in a finishing barrel, and they mm. go another two years in the finishing barrel. Right. So it doesn't seem like there's a lot of rules for, you know, exactly what needs to happen. Not at all. Yeah. You know, and, and that's where the Scots have innovated, where right. they make these really unique flavors. Right. There's a couple other things that go on when you actually go to bottle. Um, again, they do the combining of all those different barrels to yeah. actually get the flavor profile they want. They'll then also... Most distilleries these days do chill filtration. Yeah. So at the point at which you've got the scotch, right, and you take it freshly out of the barrel, and you can buy scotch today that is cask strength. Yeah. So if it just came out of the barrel, it's not 40% alcohol. It's higher than that. Yeah. And it's got particulates in it. Mm -hmm. And that makes the scotch cloudy, especially if you chill it. So if you put an ice cube in in unfiltered scotch, Mm -hmm. it'll go cloudy. And and people don't like that. And so this chill filtration technique was developed where they basically take the scotch and they chill it to very close to freezing. Mm -hmm. And it makes the particulate freeze and fall out of the scotch. Yeah. And then they'll pull off the scotch above the particulate so that you get a very clear scotch. Yep. Some purists say chill filtration is pure evil. Right. And uh, we want those flavors. Yeah. The other thing they'll do is they'll cut the scotch with water. That's why scotch is at 40%. Yeah. Not that they got it that down there in the barrel. Yeah. It's that they actually, once they got the flavor profile right, they dilute it with water so it's exactly 40%. And and that's a really good flavor. I mean, you get a lot more flavor at 40% than you do at a higher alcohol Because level. at high alcohols, it tends to blind the tongue. Right. Okay. Until you get hooked on other kinds of scotches in other states. There's a bunch of things you can do there. Mm-hmm. You know, you have this sort of traditional, what we've just described making scotch, which is your your standard good quality single malt scotches. Right. And they have older ones and younger ones. And and that's why a lot of people like just taking a few drops of water and adding it to straight scotch to open it up. To, well, yeah. if you're dealing with a tr- normal 40% scotch, like a Macallan 12, yeah. adding waters, the only thing it's going to do is dilute the alcohol further, which yeah. maybe that takes the sharpness off your tongue. Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. sensitive is your tongue? But it's already been cut with water. Right. Okay. So you're not going to change the flavor profiles at all, really. You're just going to reduce the alcohol level. Mm-hmm. But if you get a cask strength Scotch. Mm. So a scotch that has never been cut with water, there are flavors that only dissolve in water. Mm. And so you can substantially change the taste of scotch mm. by adding water to a cast drink. That's what they talk about opening it up. Opening it up, yeah. you know, changing the character around. And I found scotches, like I personally feel Lagavulin, I would never put water in it. Yeah, I love it just the way it is. And, it, and I find if you put water in it, it doesn't taste as good. It, yeah. it fla- the flavor flattens out. It makes yeah. me sad. Yeah. So it depends on the scotch. By the um, way, I'm a huge fan of Lagavulin <laughs> and uh, of the Islays in general. And I didn't used to be. Mm-hmm. I was, uh, McAllen was my very first favorite scotch. Although, admittedly, Ethan Weiner, Crescent Software guru and uh, guy who got me, launched my career, he got me, uh, we had scotch time at Crescent Software. Right. And it was all Glenlivet. Yeah. 
and he used to buy it by the case, and every day at 5 o'clock was scotch time. And, and Gleblev is incredibly it was popular a, scotch. Very popular and yeah. very easy to drink and very nice, flavorful. And then I discovered McAllen, and I was like, whoa, <laughs> where have you been, <laughs> where have you my been all my life? right? And then, uh, only then did I start drinking the Islays, but... Because the smoke is overwhelming if you're not used to it. Yeah, I do think you your palate for scotch evolves. And Lafroy even more than Lagavulin, so. yeah. 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 And you, definitely the way you taste scotch evolves over time. I think it's an old man's drink, for better or worse. You know, we are now middle-aged men, and, right. and our taste sensitivity has gone down, and so these stronger flavors appeal to us right. more. Right, uh, I was going to go through some of the different variations on, you, know, you see cast strength, right. it means they haven't diluted it with water. Right. Um, you could, you'll also see unfiltered scotch too. So, for example, the Glen, uh, Glenlivet Nadura mm. is an unfiltered scotch. And I recommend trying it at least once. It's a little harsher, different set of flavors, but mm-hmm. you know, you can see what filtration does. Then you can also get a, even harder to find are single barrel scotches. Single barrel means it came out of a single barrel. One barrel. So you remember this is a 500 Maybe liter barrel. 300 bottles tops. Yeah. Depends on the barrel. Yeah. Depends on how old it is and so on. Uh, another big part for scotch that, that was a real shock for me, there's like 90 distilleries in Scotland. Mm. I mean, there's a lot of distilleries in Scotland, mm. but there are not that many brands. There are only, you know, maybe 20, 30, you know, brands of scotch. Well, brands that you can get in a bar. Or a, but or the, or I mean, that, there's a lot of flora and fauna, as you call them. Yes, but they don't actually try and sell uh, they don't do marketing. They're not yeah. a brand of scotch. Right. They don't make custom bottles and they haven't done those marketing campaigns right. and have a particular typeface. You know, that is a subsect, a smaller subsect of the scotch market in Scotland. Much more common are the distilleries that only sell to blenders. Yeah. So we've just been talking about single malt so right. far, but when you talk about blended whiskey, so doers, Johnny Walker. Johnny Walker, easily the biggest, right? Yep. Geo is a huge company. They yep. own Johnny Walker. They own a ton of distilleries. Cuddy Sark. Cuddy Sark, <laughs> which not even, you know, and um, uh, Famous Grouse. Famous Grouse, yeah. So, But Famous Grouse is uh, McAllen, a lot of McAllen, and, uh, and something else too, right? And, and Highland Park. Highland so Park, famous, yeah. the traditional Famous Grouse. So how do you make – so the whole thing about blending – is that you're taking different malts and combining them, right. right? And there are lots of different kinds of blended whiskey, and even distilleries will make their own blends yeah. from their own particular uh, whiskeys. But in the case of Famous Grouse, and I've toured the Glen Turret facility and, and seen how they make Famous Grouse, th- only 30% of Famous Grouse is Highland Park and McAllen. The other 70% is pure grain alcohol. That's evil. Well, it's how they get the price down. The get thing the pr- is, and, and it still retains the flavor. Yeah, I guess and that's, that's the whole really, point, is they've yeah. got enough of those single malts in there yeah. to give the flavor that you want, but get the price down by to a, a third. Right. And so very, t- and I keep a bottle of single, uh, of famous grouse around. Yeah, it's pretty good. Because after you've had a couple of good single malts, you're not qualified anymore, Absolutely. man. Absolutely. I'm totally, you start the night with the good stuff and, and you then go you switch progressively up. down. And, and Famous Grouse <laughs> tastes great. And and so Famous Grouse buys barrels from Highland Park and McAllen, right? right? And they're looking for their flavor profile, so they'll buy that. In fact, you can even get distiller special bottlings like uh, uh, J.D. McPhail right. and right. Ratterly are companies that don't own any stills at all. But they go to these distilleries and they buy, well, they buy barrels and they'll do single barrelings. They'll mm. buy a barrel of Lagavulin and they'll make their own bottling of it. Hmm. Uh, 
and even more fun than that is these, I mean, it's one thing to get a Lagavulin or Macallan, but how about a Mortlock? Yeah, it doesn't exist, right? What the heck is Mortlock? Well, Mortlock is a distillery in Speyside outside of Dufftown, and almost all of their scotch goes into Johnny Walker. Right. Right? They're a Daigio distillery, and they are part of the Johnny Walker blend, but every so often, they find a great barrel. Their yeah. barrelmen are tasting it. It's a really good barrel. They'll do a one-off bottling. That's those flora and fauna bottlings. They're yeah, only yeah. sold in the UK. Yeah. And they're 40 pounds. They're not expensive. And the bottle's super plain. It's just a plain old-fashioned scotch bottle with, right. a, with a cork top on it and, and a plain label that says Mortlock. I've seen 15s, 17s, 19s, but they're one-offs. Right. There's 300 of those or 400 of those, and then they're gone. Yeah. And, uh, and every time I can find one of those, I'll grab it and enjoy it. I should have a Mortlock 22 right now back home if you, want, All right. if you want to come on over. So 45 minutes in, we should talk about other whiskeys besides scotch. We could almost just do three shows, <laughs> right? <laughs> no. But, so, so, but, but we've really, with scotch, illustrated the whiskey making process. Yes. And now we're just talking variations. Yes. So Irish. A couple of things. Okay, and right next door. And plenty of arguments between the Irish taught the Scotch mace whiskey, the yep. Scotch taught the Irish mace whiskey. So key things that different about Irish whiskey. The first is it's not only malted barley. Different distilleries in Ireland, and there's only a handful of them, maybe six, mm. use different combinations. So they may use unmalted grain. Huh, really? Or rye. Just not malted as part of their distillation. Sometimes they'll combine it with malted barley. Some Irish whiskeys are straight malted barley. So that creates a very different flavor profile. And I, I would argue more grain flavor than wood flavor. Uh, and why is that? I, well, they don't do peating for starters. Right. That's not normal. Uh, they tend towards plain barrels too. Although yeah. you're starting to see flavored barrels yes, in Irish are. whiskey as well, yeah. but it's a relatively new thing. Uh, most part, the Irish whiskeys are always pot stilled. Mm-hmm. Most Irish whiskeys are blends too. You don't see the sort of classic single malt design. The, when they do do single malts, if you're going to do single malt, then it's just malted barley. Right. You'll also see single pot. Huh. So it's grain whiskey and maybe some barley as well, but they is like a single malt, except you can't call it single malt anymore because right. they only do it from the given distillation. Right? And, and isn't most uh, Irish triple distilled? And they're all typically, yeah, they're all triple distilled Irish whiskeys. So they do three distillations, which is kind of strange. Well, it just makes for a cleaner product. And that, you know, that really uh, gets to the essence of what I think about the Irish culture and the Ir- and Irish whiskey is having in common. They, they, they go for the, the pure, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the unadulterated flavor of the grain, you know, without a lot of flavor added from the, from a barreling processor, you know, port or, or this or that mm-hmm. or flavors with peat, you know, they're looking for a, a sort of a pure flavor. Yeah. It's, I think it's a, a very clean, straight flavor. Yeah. Uh, it can be quite strong. Yep. Uh, and, but imminently drinkable. I have nothing bad to say about Irish whiskey at all. Have you ever had pachin? I, I, no, I did not have that with you. Pachin is essentially Irish moonshine. Nice. And I learned about it from a lot of the old Irish music because there's songs about, uh, like Mickle Hatton, you know, uh, the pachin is on the air, you know, it, it was a guy who makes moonshine. Right. And he goes away and everybody suffers. and it's like you know where are your sacks of barley will your likes be seen again you know and yeah raw really you know those are raw whiskeys and they they don't have anything bad to say about them but they definitely don't have any of the wood flavors yeah they'll straighten your hair out too. yeah they'll wake you up big time 
So, and I don't have much more to say about Irish whiskey oh, than so, that. Okay, so what about Canadian? Canadian whiskeys uh, are typically are combined whiskeys and blends. So they tend to use wheat and, and a lot corn of rye and uh, and rye. Uh, tip, you know, you'll normally see as much as three grains in a given distillate. Mm-hmm. Uh, Canadian whiskey really made its chops during Prohibition. The yeah. Canadians made a lot of whiskey that got shipped down to the U.S. Sure illegally. Did, yeah. And, and so, so when I think of, you know, Crown Royal or I guess it's Seagram's yeah. uh, Canadian whiskey as well. Um, you know, I don't think of like the, the same characters I the find in bourbon, which is that sort of caramely, you know, mapley flavor. Yeah. But, uh, very so, drinkable whiskeys, but very. they t- tend to be a blend, blend of grain, still aged in wood, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, but almost always blended. There's no real sense of a single malt style. And it, and even when you do have rye whiskey, almost never is it pure rye. There's yeah. always some uh, either wheat or barley in it as well. Okay. So, may I tell the story of bourbon? We please, All right. please do. We had I, such a good time. We had a great time in Kentucky, and we learned this story maybe five times because we went to five different distilleries. Mm-hmm. But... So as the as America was becoming a new country, there was a lot of immigrants from the Scotland, Ireland, England. Obviously, a lot of immigrants came from that because the geographic location to the mainland United States was, you know, obviously on the coast. And so these people brought their knowledge of distillation mm-hmm. from Scotch whiskey and Irish whiskey and and they, you know, they started making American whiskey, this is before bourbon, mm-hmm. f- you know, storing it in oak barrels and aging it and then shipping it. Typically, uh, it was made in Kentucky and around Kentucky because the, Kentucky sits on an, uh, a large aquifer that is uh, at the bed of it is this huge limestone reservoir, essentially. And limestone removes the iron from from the water. So iron is something that you do not want in water when you're making whiskey. Mm-hmm. So it turns out, you know, the motherland, the motherland of bourbon is essentially in this area of Kentucky around Louisville. And so, you know, the, the American whiskey was being made there and shipped down the river to the Mississippi River and down to New Orleans where it was then dispersed, uh, you know, for, for sale. Uh, along comes a distiller named Elijah Craig, and Elijah Craig was a preacher mm-hmm. who was also a distiller, and most farmers were distillers as well because they had extra grain and they could make a lot of money with alcohol. So and It's also a great way to store grain, turn it into alcohol. Absolutely. And it densifies the So uh, Elijah Craig had a, had a fire at his distillery, and a lot of his barrels, his oak barrels, white oak, got burned from the inside they got all charred and you know like you said we're a frugal bunch don't we don't waste it don't waste anything so we put our our corn whiskey in the uh in the barrels and send them down the river and they got about six months later they got to new orleans opened up the barrels and they were this bright reddish color Mm -hmm. and all of the a lot of flavor from that charring of that oak change the whiskey but the in new orleans they really loved it so this uh elijah craig guy was in bourbon county and so you would see bourbon on the barrel and uh bourbon was the name of a of an american uh french immigrant i don't exactly know the story there i can't remember that but but that's what the county was named after 
And so they, there was a big demand for that bourbon whiskey. And so then in 1964, only a little while ago in yeah. the grand scheme of things, the U.S. Congress recognized bourbon as a distinctive product of the United States. And they laid down these rules, the FDA, that state that bourbon must be made in the United States. It does not need to be made in Kentucky, even though 97% of it or so is due to that beautiful supply of water. The Bardstown area of Kentucky, like I said, sits atop of this giant limestone aquifer. And that's where Maker's Mark and a yeah. whole bunch of other great distilleries are. Well, most of them are there. So the rules state that bourbon must be made from a mixture of grains that is at least 51% corn. Which makes sense because they were in the New World and this is the grain they had. Yeah, maize, corn. Mm. Corn is the crop of America, right? So it must be aged in brand new and then charred oak barrels. Right. So they have to be oak barrels. They have to be new. They can't be used. And American oak, too. American white oak. I'm not sure if white oak is necessary or just oak, but right. we couldn't figure that one out. Uh, but they had to be charred and distilled to no more than 160 proof or 80% alcohol. And then barreled at no more than 125 proof and bottled at no less than 80 proof. Right. 40% alcohol, again, that yep. sort of line of that's the minimum for it to be whiskey. And then on top of that, there's a constraint in order to call it straight bourbon. It has to been aged for at least two years, having no additional flavoring, coloring, or added spirits. It has to come just from the grain, distillate, and the wood. And this is one of the reasons that Jack Daniels isn't considered bourbon, because it's filtered through sugar, maple, charcoal prior to aging which adds a sort of a smoky flavor, and that classifies it as a Tennessee whiskey. Which I think but you know happy to call it. But you know what's really interesting, and you pointed out this out, mm -hmm. when we went to Woodford Reserve. We got lucky. We saw them actually draining barrels. Yes, and I actually have photos and a picture of this, which I'm going to post photos all, all up and down here. Sure. Um, if you go to carlfranklin.net, you'll see a, a blog post with pictures and stuff. Um. So we got them, uh, we got to see them opening up the barrels and pouring them out. And we noticed all this black stuff. Yeah. And, and we figured it out. It's the ch charring from the inside of the barrel. Right. All has all fallen away and has been floating in the barrel. And when they drain the barrel, all those, those charcoal chunks. Yeah. Fell into the drain racks. Yep. And all the bourbons flowing through all that charcoal. So it's charcoal filtered. Shh, don't tell me. Although there is a di distinctive difference. That's yeah. happening at the end of the process right. where Jack's doing it at the beginning of the process. That's right. So but that is the, the story of bourbon. And the, uh, the, the mash bill really interested me because we knew there were bourbons we really liked. Yeah. And one of the things we came to realize was that all of our favorite bourbons have a mash bill of at least 51% corn. Yeah. That's the rules. And then... Uh, in some bourbons, it's rye and yeah. malted barley, yep. but the ones we like were wheat and malted barley. Maker's Mark had that soft red winter wheat right. that they used, and then uh, and always a little bit of malted barley included. Right. And I don't think I found any of the bourbons that we looked at that didn't have malted barley involved. And uh, it was Uncle Dave that explained it to yeah. us that corn has a much more complex 
starch in it that's very hard for the brewer's yeast to break down. Yes. And so the byproduct is some nasty flavors that generate methanol, which is poison. Right. And you can't drink the head off a of corn whiskey. Well, if you, it will kill you. Yeah, but that's what you're talking about. Real moonshine is straight distilled corn and nothing else. Yeah. And the problem is because the enzymes don't break it down properly, it makes much more higher toxin levels. Yeah. Uh, but if you add a little bit, 5 or 10% of malted barley to the grist, it provides the enzymes to complete the yeast breakdown of the sugars in corn and gets rid of that. And it's an amylase is the enzyme. And it's the same stuff we have in our gut that converts uh, starch, to, starch sugar. to sugar. Yeah, same yeah. and basically the same process. So, you you know, you're sort of pre-doing all this. But you can imagine... N- Back then, in the in the in the 18th century, the 19th century, they didn't necessarily know all this math. What they knew is, mm. if I add some malted <laughs> barley to my corn mash, it tastes much better. And people don't die, <laughs> people don't and die. that's a good thing. <laughs> well, so uh, we got to talk about Woodford Reserve, yeah, because this is another one of our favorite bourbons. Probably yeah. for me, you know, I I love Maker's Mark. It's my standard go-to bourbon. Yep. Woodford Reserve is a wonderful bourbon too, and, the and I never really knew why. Yes, and and Knob Creek is also a good one, although there's a little more rye in Knob Creek, but yep. I kind of like that flavor. But there, and it was rye and Woodford too, but the stills were totally different. And the stills at Woodford were Scottish stills, yeah, made in Scotland, and they were the pot neck with the high neck stills in two different sizes, and, and the low wines also and also triple stills. distilled. Uh, and they did do a third distillation. Yeah. They, they actually used the high wine still twice. Yeah. Uh, Maker's, Maker's Mark, I think, represented more traditional bourbon style distilleries right. where they use a column still for the first stage. As most of them did. Yeah. I mean, all of the that other ones the did norm. as well. I think make, uh, Woodford was the only one that all, all pot stills. And the column still blew my mind because they're massive. 50 feet high, basically mm-hmm. a great big cylinder with plates and little flexible floating caps in, in each of the plates right. that are, they call reflux plates. And they actually pump the uh, the alcohol in at the middle of this column. And so it falls down and gets heated up and goes back up. And there's this whole up and down cycle, the reflux cycle. Right. And out of the top, down to the condenser, you get this first stage distillate. Yeah. But unlike with pot stills where you'd go from you know, eight to 12% up to 40% the first stage. And with the column still, they'd get all the way to 70% first right. go. It's then much they more efficient and faster and strong. Yeah. Uh, and then they'd use a little pot still to do the second stage. And then you go from 75, 70 to 75 or yeah. 60 to 65, just a little bit of an increase. Right. But it really changed the flavor. We had an opportunity at Maker's Mark to taste literally coming out of the stills, mm-hmm. the two stages. So no wood flavors at all, but just that, that grainy flavor. And the, and you could tell the oiliness in the first stage versus the cleanness in the second stage. And we also got to taste the yeast beer. Yes. Which to me was amazing. It tastes like an old, as you said in the video that we'll show, mm-hmm. uh, an old Trappist muck. Yeah, very Belgian, Belgian kind of rich, sweet beer. Yeah. Yeah. It was really an amazing, amazing space to do all that. The barreling too. And they do shuffle their barrels around. And uh, when we did the tasting at Maker's Mark, I was blown away by this. They let us taste uh the white dog so the yeah. raw whiskey on its own yep. but it had been cut with water so it was at 40 percent yeah uh, as opposed to when we got the sample from the stream and it was literally the strength that it was coming out right of. 
And then we tasted normal Maker's Mark, which is delicious and wonderful in yep, our standard. Yep, yep. And then we tasted 46. And 40s. Well, no, the third one was the... Was, was the it the overproof? Overmatured, eight years. And you could tell... The reason they gave it to you, and, you know, we recoiled because it kind of tasted nasty. Yeah. They, they, they're proving their point that you can keep it in the barrel too long. Right. And it, you, you, it, you, like you said, it's alcohol's a solvent. It's pulling stuff out of the wood. Some of that stuff you don't like. It's not good. And so they made the point that they age it for five to seven years, not because they're cheap, but because that's the right time. And, and it's arranged because they're going by taste. Yeah. They want it, when it hits the flavor right, then they actually bottle it, which, yeah. again, very interesting. And so the, drinking the older one was really surprising. Okay, now I want to talk just a little bit about, because we're almost out of time, but how to drink bourbon. Because <laughs> if you're taking Maker's Mark and adding Coca-Cola to it and ice... Stop what it. What are you doing? Go get some Jack or some turkey. I'll, I'll never forget this. My father, may he rest in peace, said to me when I was just started to learn how to drink, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and I would like highballs, you know, just like Canadian whiskey and 7-Up or yep. something like that. Because, you know, it was easy for a 21-year-old to drink. Yeah, tradition, and by traditional, crown and ginger. And he right? said to me, why would you ruin a perfectly good whiskey with soda? And I thought... What are you, an old man? You know, it's Jesus. <laughs> Leave me alone, Dad. It's like because I like it, all right. You know, but but yeah, you know, you 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 learn to taste these things and yeah. taste the subtle differences in them, and you, man, it's a sin. So, but I also but, think but it's your nice. twenty-one-year-old taste buds. Yeah, it's too strong. It's too it's strong. too you know too sharp. So anyway, we I I like to drink um, bourbon straight. But, you know, sometimes when it's room temperature, it's not so good. I kind of mm -hmm. like to cool it off. And we started putting an ice cube or two ice cubes. Right. And you should see the eyebrows go up when the bartender, when you say, just two ice cubes, please. And they go, oh, uh, you know. You, you know what? Give me a glass of ice and I'll put it in yeah, myself. that's right. So you never know. But anyway, so I, I've taken to putting it in the freezer. And, uh, just chilling the liquor. Chilling the liquor. Yeah. Because, you know, it's a little more viscous mm -hmm. when it comes out. But it's so delicious because I love. I just love the flavor, cold and the richness on your and tongue. The richness like on that. the tongue, and it's not diluted. That's just a little trick that that uh, you can take or leave. Uh, we pretty much drink all of our scotch neat. Yes. Uh, although occasionally, for certain scotches, a couple, literally a couple of drops of water. We'll use right. a spoon, dip it in the water, and let the drops fall. Now, in. Scotch, I do prefer at room temperature. Yeah, and I, I and I think there's a lot of flavor in there that you don't get if it gets too cold. Right. Whereas with bourbon, some of the flavors come out better when it's cold. Yeah, I don't know why. Um, another thing that Uncle Dave and this is uh, Bill Wagner's uh, uncle who mm -hmm. gave us a tour at Maker's Mark told me about was the perfect manhattan yes now this is made with makers 46 which is 46 because it's the 46th flavor profile combination of the hundreds that they came up with you know try and find a, a different makers mark try to find a different and makers mark they are floating 10 pieces french of french oak that has been toasted in the barrel and not not singed and burnt like the barrel. Like the barrel is just a little caramelization on the outside. Yeah, literally toasted. Yeah. So this Maker's Forty Six, they take regular Maker's Mark, and then they add another few months of yeah, uh, it's like another year or so, yeah. only in the winter time, right? When it was cool, they put it in these special barrels with these pieces of French oak in it. So it's really wonderful stuff. And so here's the perfect Manhattan: uh, three ounces of Maker's Forty Six, a half an ounce of sweet vermouth. 
and half an ounce of dry vermouth. No bitters. Put it over ice, stir, and there you go. The perfect Manhattan. Is that enough whiskey for you to do, my friend? That's enough. I think it's time to go have one. I tend to agree. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Richard. You're just a font of amazing information. We always have a good time drinking scotch together, too, don't we? We certainly do. And we do lots of scotch tastings uh, when we are traveling in different places where they have a good collection of scotch. We'll put together an array of scotches to try them on. So the next one will probably be in Norway. Mm -hmm. We'll do one at NDC Yep. for anybody who's there and wants to come out with us. And maybe one at Ordev if we get back there. Uh, I think we'll be back at Ordev. They both have really good bars with great collections of scotch. Make yep. it fun to try all those different things. I've never seen more scotch than in Malmo, Sweden, believe it or not. <laughs> all right, Richard. Thanks again. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Plop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.